Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are talking about guitars and guitar making and the history of guitar making and kind of a state of the union of what the world of guitar manufacturing looks like today. And we are in very good hands today because our guide to help us explore this world is Jason Verlindi, who is the publisher of the Fretboard Journal and fretboardjournal.com, where for nearly 20 years now, Jason has been covering and documenting a lot of what is going on in the world of guitar making and guitar culture. This episode of Crafted is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is a small but growing collection of some of the best craft companies across a range of craft categories. And you should check them out because not only do those companies support the independent work that we do here at Blister, they are producing a number of our favorite products in the world, full stop. So we will include a link in the show notes of this episode to our Blister Craft Collective. Check them out because we have a hunch that they are going to become some of your new favorite companies too. And now let's talk all things guitars with Jason for Lindy. Here we go. Well, Jason, how are you today and where are you today? I am sitting in the Fretboard Journal's uh, not-so-spacious headquarters here in Seattle, Washington, and uh, I'm honored to be on the show. I'm a huge fan. Ah, that's very kind of you to say. Well, it's cool to be talking, you know, one publisher to another. I'm n- I never call myself a publisher, but I <laughs> you guess are. I, if I, if you are, I am. That's yeah. how I look at this. But um, this is going to be pretty cool. Diving into the world of guitars and guitar making. And I guess to get us started, how and when did you first get into guitars? Sure. Uh, before we get into that, I'll just say uh, about a month ago, closing weekend at Crested Butte, you graciously gave me the nickel tour of the Blister headquarters. And mm. uh, and it was great. We have all sorts of weird parallels. We both put out magazine-like products. I'm a total ski nerd, probably as big a nerd about ski gear as guitar gear, as you will hear. And we both put out a bunch of podcasts, and we oddly have a thing called The Summit, both of us. <laughs> Mine mm. is in Chicago in August. Yours is in Crested Butte. Uh, but yeah, we have, we have a, a networking and gathering event that, uh, where people can get their hands on some really cool instruments and meet their heroes, which is pretty much exactly what you guys do. So, it's kind of mm. fun. Some some real parallels there. I was going to get to some of that in a minute here. <laughs> okay, okay. But um, but no that that I mean that is the the backstory. I mean, I, I guess you've been a Blister member for some time, and then we had a chance to link up in Crested Butte at the end of this ski season, and was a super interesting conversation as we sort of discovered more and more of these parallels yeah. of kind of what we're doing here at Blister and, and what you're doing in the, the world of guitars. Yeah. Yeah. I've admired what you guys have done for a long time and have gotten the, the gear guide for a while, and I've been a member for a while. And like I said, I, I truly, you know, nerd out on ski gear 
probably more so than I do on guitar gear now. Cause I know the guitar stuff so well. Hmm. Uh, I'm always curious about these new brands and new products and if they're really great or not. And you guys do such a good job of distilling that. So thank you. Hmm. From a, like, you know, we, we tend to like around here, there's levels of dorkdom yeah. and geardom and nerddom, right? And the fact that you put out a podcast called The Truth, is it The Truth About Vintage Amps? Yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> that is so next level nerdery. That's like if we, I was listening to it last night and I was thinking that would be as if we put out a blister podcast just called like The Truth About Bindings or actually Vintage Bindings. That's the most specific topic imaginable you know you know what the blister the 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 real blister parallel would be would actually be like the truth about custom boot fitting because getting there are thousands of vintage fender and gibson guitar amplifiers floating around the world played by world-class players as well as people Hmm. who just have you know an amp that they've collected in their house and they all require some tlc and they all require some servicing and finding the right person to do that huh. job is trickier <laughs> and trickier. And the guy that is the host of that show, I'm sort of the Ed McMahon, Andy Richter of the show, uh, <laughs> is this amazing uh, national treasure out of Northern California named Skip Simmons, who I've known for mm-hmm. years. And he and I talked for a long time about, you know, how do we tap into your expertise? And ultimately, we came upon this sort of like car talk for guitar nerds format where mm. people send in questions or voice memos. He he addresses them. I kind of keep the ship or the boat on the rails or whatever the saying is. And, uh, and yeah, we've done like 114 of those episodes and people tune in from around the world. It's nuts. But yeah, boot fitting would be similar because it's sort of this weird dark arts where nobody really knows how it gets done, but you know when it's not done right and it sucks. And there's, you know, so yeah, I don't know. But vintage bindings, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how many collectors, users of vintage bindings there are. Probably a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I, I was, wasn't looking to dive into that, but but I was sitting there thinking, man, Jason is definitely out nerding us uh, oh, yeah. over yeah, here. Yeah, we get so. nerdy over here for sure. Okay. It happens. And I, I guess we're doing things a little bit out of order here. Sure. So, there's the Truth About Vintage Amps podcast, yep. which you just described. And then tell us a bit more about the Fretboard Journal. Yeah. So, I started this magazine 18 years ago. It's a quarterly magazine dedicated to sort of guitar culture and the craftspeople behind guitars, great musicians. We have been called sort of the NPR of guitar magazines. We are not where you're going to go read about, you know, the latest shred artists or or a heavy metal act. But, you know, I, I was inspired, as I think a lot of magazines were, by what Steve and Debbie Pesman created with the Surfer's Journal that, that's been going mm-hmm. strong for decades. Mm-hmm. I know Mike Rogge from Mountain Gazette and Jeff mm-hmm. Galbraith up at the Ski Journal and various other publications in the outdoor space and not looked at that magazine and went, oh my gosh, like you can create basically a coffee table book a few times a year that mm-hmm. isn't about, you know, travel guides, gear reviews, like that actually interviews the people. And and I kind of saw that magazine and immediately thought like, I love guitars, but I hate guitar magazines. Why, huh. why can't I do this for guitars? And, and I did reach out to them going on almost 20 years ago and, and <laughs> actually sent them an, a note and said, I'll come work for free for you for a month. And they graciously wrote back, you can come for a day, you know? And so I hung out with, I hung out with the Pesmans at the Surfer's Journal 
in San Clemente, California for a day. I flew down there and learned a lot and and kind of got the lay of the land and then was off to the races creating my own magazine. And here we are. Hmm. Say a bit more about that when you said, I love guitars, but I hate guitar media. Mm-hmm. Say just a bit more well, on that because that's, that's fascinating, right? Like we have these things, these cultures that we're really invested in and passionate about. And that could be skiing, yep. mountain biking, running, guitars, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes the kind of papers of record in these industries, we don't always feel like it is a good representation of the things that we love about the culture or the practice or the gear, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, most most magazines, and I'm not speaking out of turn, like some magazines, there's a lot of great guitar magazines out there, but most of them are based around either um, reviewing and announcing new products because they're ad-driven and the advertisers mm-hmm. tend to be the gear manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're announcing new albums from you know artists who are actively recording or touring. And I looked at this universe and, you know, we're talking pre-Spotify days. I've always had this like crazy weird record collection. And I'd be like, well, how come I can't write about this other person who hasn't released a record in 10 years, but I listen to that record more than anyone else. And, you know, going to the gear side of things, even back then, there were so many reviews for the latest and greatest products from all the major brands. It was sort of like, how about I interview the people behind these instruments? That actually sounds cooler to me than just writing about the specs of some new electric guitar that just came out. And so hmm. our focus from day one has always been, you know, interviewing the craftspeople, interviewing the the musicians that we love or that I love. Um, and then just having fun with the format, having musicians interview other musicians, having craftspeople interview other craftspeople, having just beautiful photo essays of great guitar collections or workshops. Um, it's sort of a, a different take on guitar culture than, you know, what, what had been there. So that sounds, <laughs> I was about to use a term like big guitar media, you know, um, like <laughs> yeah. big oil. Yeah. Uh, that sounds very similar to what we see kind of in the outdoor sports world where these things get so ad driven. So it's, you know, the the buyer's guides come out and every new latest, greatest thing is the best thing ever. There's never a new product that's actually worse than the old thing. Sure. I mean, and obviously that's exactly what we kind of set ourselves up against at Blister, um, you know, when we started this thing 12 years ago. But so we're kind of seeing some exact parallels, I think, on that front. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've never done the sort of, you know, you guys are like the Cooks Illustrated of of ski gear or outdoor gear in general. Like you guys will go and at no small expense, you know, audition tons of gear and, and deliver kind of, you know, unbiased opinions. We don't really do gear reviews in the magazine because there are frankly so many of them out now <laughs> in terms of guitars both in print as well as on YouTube, but we do try to corner the market on telling the stories behind the guitars. And that's kind of our jam. Yeah. Yep. How and when did you actually get into guitars? Sure. 
So I am, uh, I'll date myself. I'm 49 years old. I grew up when college radio and all that stuff that was left of the dial and indie rock and indie labels, like I I really fell down that rabbit hole, punk rock and, and, you know, indie bands went to college, volunteered at the college radio station, got into music journalism, interviewing bands and kind of, you know, quickly realized like, you know, interviewing a young band that has like one album under their belt. There's only so much you can talk about. Some of these folks just weren't well-versed in in doing interviews. Some of them just didn't have a lot of life history. And so you'd end up talking about the same things. But the minute you start talking about gear, it's kind of like with skiing uh, or anything, uh, it opens up some new portals. You start talking, you start talking about the minutia of like, well, I had this thing, but I sold it and I regret that I sold it and I missed this thing. So I started incorporating that more and more into interviews. And then I moved to Seattle from California in 1998. And I worked for, at at the time, a little company called Amazon that Hmm. was uh, a bookseller at the time about to start (laughs) selling CDs. And they hired a bunch of music journalists and folks from record labels to help them build out a music store. And came up here and and that was sort of when I first, you know, that was kind of my first real job and it didn't, I didn't get rich, but I had enough money to buy a $1,500 Martin guitar, you know, that at the time felt like the biggest investment I had made short of my vehicle. Mm-hmm. And that was when I really started to take note of guitar news and guitar culture and kind of look around and read all those other magazines. And at the same time, I had been a subscriber, like I said, to the Surfer's Journal and, and Powder. Powder had a huge influence on me as a journalist just in general. Some of the mm-hmm. writing back when I was a 15-year-old there is like mm-hmm. indelibly in my brain. And so mm-hmm. taking cues from that and the Surfer's Journal and kind of trying to distill it into the world of guitars is kind of how the Fretboard Journal came to be. And we launched in 1998. Made a little 16-page prototype, went to the big trade show called NAM in Anaheim, California, went, you know, basically cold called, walked up to brands that we admired and said, do you want to advertise in this thing? This is what it's going to look like. And enough people said yes that we were kind of, we kind of hit the ground running. Some many years later, <laughs> here you are. I'm still here almost 20 years later, which is crazy. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about just the interest in guitar playing today. Sure. Where are we? You know, I, I think again, in all these sort of um, these different activities and arts, these things kind of ebb and flow. And sometimes for different points or reasons in culture, you know, a movie comes out or something or a new artist is on the scene and it will drive and inspire a bunch of people to, you know, pick up skiing or pick up guitar playing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we today in your sense in terms of the ebb and flow of the the popularity of, of playing? Sure. I mean, I think there were a lot of articles a decade ago about the death of guitar because of electronic music, because of hip hop, whatever. Whatever is happening on what's left of like pop radio, I don't think has much of an effect on the real world at all. The reality is some of the biggest, probably many, if not most of the lucrative touring acts these days, from Taylor Swift to Bruce Springsteen, Mm -hmm. down to Billy Strings and King Gizzard and all points in between, 
are kind of playing guitar-based music. And I have mm-hmm. to think that that's trickling down at some level to younger people or fans of those bands going like, well, I want to learn how to play this. The guitar is in a pretty strong place right now. I think when COVID hit, it was in a super strong place. And a lot of brands ramped up to meet production because we all thought we were going to be holed up in our house forever and and uh-huh. writing the next great folk or rock song. Some of the brands, the bigger brands who pivoted really fast are now, I think, sitting on some inventory and going, mm-hmm. okay, what... We know what our numbers were pre-COVID. We know what they were at the start of COVID. Like as we come out of this and look for the next five years, like where are things going? And I think that's a little uncertain. But throughout all this, you know, unlike a lot of ski gear, you can usually sell your five-year-old guitar that uh, at at a pretty close to the value it was worth if you've taken care of it and it started out as a good guitar. So, huh. so there, okay. there is a, a very active resale market and and people upgrading or downgrading or taking five guitars and investing in one great guitar that they really love um, that's going to carry them through their years. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the guitar industry, like a lot of industries, is in a, a total state of flux all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's certainly not at a low point right now. Hmm. And... Is there kind of the very common way in which people get into playing the guitar? Like, does everybody go buy a cheap ukulele? <laughs> like, is that the path? And then from there, they're like, this is pretty cool. Maybe I'll or or is it all across the board? Like, so, for example, if thinking about skiing, not many people get like into skiing for the first time. By getting into backcountry skiing. Sure. And if they do that, that's a real bad idea and probably a good way to die. But um, <laughs> so what are what are like the inroads? How do people get into it? And are there sort of actual generalizations that kind of hold true or is it just all over the map? It's a little all over the map, but the ukulele did have a huge resurgence there over the last 15, 10 years. And that was, I think, a gateway drug for a lot of people (laughs) into, well, I love this thing and it didn't take up much room and now I'm going to get this slightly bigger object and some of the skills will translate over. I think our readership skews a little older, so we have a lot of folks who played guitar in high school or, or, you know, took it up and then maybe didn't take it up and now they're in a place in their life where you know they have a little bit more free time maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit more disposable income and they're buying uh you know a starter guitar maybe they're learning online there's so much you can you know the i'm trying hard not to make too many comparisons between ski industry and guitar industry but let's do it the guitar media landscape right now is so youtube focused you could learn anything you've ever wanted to learn on YouTube for free, if you're willing to to go down those rabbit holes and, and spend mm-hmm. the time. There are some fast tracks where, you know, a lot of the YouTube videos will then say, and if you join my Patreon or pay me, I'll send you the tablature or the notation or whatever. Um, but you can learn so much online right now. And so there is a whole group of younger players and and older players taking it up for the first time who got a guitar into their household and have pretty much self-taught themselves um, through online instruction portals or through mm-hmm. YouTube. And that's kind of a new thing. Uh, and and usually it starts with a song that you love. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of the world's greatest songs are not that hard to play. 
Hmm. Um, you know, three chords is pretty much <laughs> what the bedrock of of a lot of rock and folk based music. And from there, you know, you you might start taking it on trips and playing it around the campfire for your family. You might find some friends mm-hmm. who you want to jam with. Uh, you, you might go into more and more difficult territory in terms of like, you know, music and proficiency. But yeah, the, the online space is huge right now for, for music. And there are a bunch of apps too. I don't really use any of the iPhone apps. I stare at my iPhone enough doing non-guitar related things. Right. But yeah, right. you can, you could, you could very easily teach yourself how to be a pretty great player just off free YouTube videos right now. One more question just about sort of where the guitar market is, I guess, today. If we think a little bit about, first of all, do you recognize ukuleles? Like in the guitar world, are we allowed to be talking about ukuleles or is that like verboten? And like, that's a different thing. We do not acknowledge that. I am insulted and you're about to hang up on me. No, or- no, no. If if you knew 20 years ago, how many debates my business partner at the time and I had about, should we call this thing the guitar journal or the fretboard journal? Like we went back and forth and we ultimately went fretboard because we could talk about ukuleles. We could talk about mandolins. We could talk about Mm -hmm. banjos once in a while because there is so much cross pollinization. Yeah. Having said all that, um, there are, are lots of ukulele players out there who have no interest in ever learning what what the guitar world is like or taking up guitar they're perfectly fine with their four strings and their cute little instrument yeah. uh and vice versa there's a ton of guitarists out there who are like ukulele hell no but mm-hmm. i don't know different strokes yeah so talk a bit about where the market is today um if we uh, let's you know let's let's keep the you know the ukulele in here for <laughs> for now sure. ukuleles versus acoustic guitars versus electric guitars versus classical guitars yeah yeah where, this is, where this are is the tricky. sales yeah this is tricky this is a bit like trying to um you know give a state of the union for the nordic ski industry the alpine ski industry and snowshoes at the same time but mm-hmm. but just to paint broad strokes you know there are nylon strings classical guitars like what andre segovia would have played that are very tradition based and there's some technology in there too that's sort of its own universe we don't really address a lot of that um it's its own they have their own magazines they have their own yep. websites and forums um they look from 20 feet away like an acoustic guitar that you would see neil young or bob dylan or billy strings play but construction wise and in terms of the strings it's all different steel string acoustic guitars that's what most people think of when they see a folk singer playing an acoustic guitar that's a big part of our world and then moving into the electric world yeah you've got you've got you know what you've seen slash play you've got that whole universe uh, as well as like telecasters what you've seen buck owens play and i'm quickly getting nerdier and nerdier as i speak and i apologize to anybody i don't want to nope. lose anybody but but you have these iconic big brands uh on both the acoustic and the electric front the biggest acoustic brands are you know martin guitars uh gibson Taylor guitars, relatively new as this industry goes, although they've been around for almost 50 years. Uh, And then, you know, on the electric side, you know, Fender and Gibson, I think are probably the two most well-known guitar brands imaginable. When you picture a guitar, an electric guitar in your head, it's usually one of those two. And, And those are sort of the biggest, you know, 
they have the biggest slice of the guitar pie. But then going down a level, you get to these really interesting smaller mid-sized factories like Collings Guitars, which is based in Austin, Texas, maybe 40, 50 employees. They might make a thousand guitars a year, whereas a Taylor guitar, you know, Martin guitars might make 150, 200,000 guitars a year. They're, they're just running all the time. Uh, and then even going down more or up the totem pole, maybe, um, you know, you have all these individual builders who maybe make 10 instruments a year that sell for five to $20,000 a piece. Hmm. Uh, and that's a really specialized world where, you know, there are a couple, there's always a dozen builders who are really in vogue, who have wait lists for the next five or 10 years uh, and customers clamoring for their instruments, new or used. Um, and then you have a lot of people who are building instruments, you know, as a hobby, or they build a few instruments a year and then their primary source of income is doing repair work. So there's kind of this wide array of, you know, guitar making large scale and extremely small scale going on at any one time. Hmm. So is it the case just to help us understand the landscape today in terms of manufacturers? So Fender and Gibson, are they like far and away the two biggest? Or is it the case that, you know, there's a number of manufacturers that might be still doing kind of higher volume, but it's, it you know, Fender and Gibson aren't controlling, I don't know, 80% of the market. No, no, no. They're not controlling 80% of the market. And, and there are a lot of, you know, bigger brands out there that uh, maybe aren't considered, you know, like the Harley Davidson heritage brand like Fender and Gibson are. But yeah. you've got Paul Reed Smith, you've got PV, you've got Ernie Ball, you've got Yamaha making mm -hmm. guitars at, uh, you know, incredible volume and at an incredibly high level. Um, and so there are, you know, these sort of more mass market guitars. And, and the, the craziest thing is, you know, the Fenders and the Gibsons, you can buy a $500 guitar from them, but you can also buy a $20,000 guitar from them. And sometimes mm -hmm. they're made in the same factory. Often they're not. But yeah, it, it, it's just a wide, wide scale. Hmm. And among, you know, self-described guitar obsessives <laughs> are they typically moving toward the boutique manufacturers or are they still proud to own a gibson or a fender as well as perhaps some mm -hmm. boutique makers as well yeah that's a great question again like different strokes for different people uh there are a lot of people out there who you know, there's sort of uh, as cool as it is to be able to buy a, you know, high end guitar off your local, you know, from your local guitar store. There's also this whole segment of people who, you know, think older is better and that vintage guitars, you know, from the quote unquote golden era, whether that's 1930s for a Martin guitar, acoustic guitar fanatic or the 50s or 60s for an electric guitar fanatic who's looking for like the Gibson that they will hang on their wall proudly. Um, there's all those segments. So there's there's often uh, a kind of crossroads where people who've got into guitar, they maybe bought a nice maybe $500 to $1,000 guitar. They're going to either upgrade to a fancier new guitar that does something better than their current instrument. Or they might even go further back in time and say, you know, I've always wanted a birth year guitar from 1974. Mm -hmm. Or I've always wanted 
a 50s Gibson Les Paul, you know, some of these things get very price prohibitive and you're like mortgaging your house to be able to yeah. afford some of this stuff. But some of it's attainable. Um, you know, you there are also plenty of people who just, you know, are we're happy with one instrument and then they get infatuated with the music of Django Reinhardt and decide that they need an arch top style guitar because they really are into jazz right now or mm-hmm. or whatever is missing from their quiver. It's so much like skiing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I see the I see the kind of well, as you're talking though, I'm I'm wondering to myself, is this like skiing? Or is this more like watches and watch collecting, right? Mm-hmm. Because because skis, if we're talking about actual performance, you know, whether you're a backcountry, you know, skier, and so you really care about uphill performance, or you know, you're somebody who cares about downhill performance, the fact is today's gear, meaning gear produced in the last 10 years or or newer, and in yeah. a lot of cases, gear produced in the last five years, that stuff is going to outperform anything older. So that's not exactly, I don't think, or this is turning into a question here, you know, how much of it is about the performance versus like in the watch world, you know, vintage watches is a huge thing and people want to own these things, but for different reasons than actual performance. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of that watch collecting thing. Uh, You can get a perfectly great, playable, has no issues, you know, great guitar for seven or eight hundred dollars, acoustic or electric, Mm -hmm. um, that will serve almost all of your needs, if if not all of them. So there is a little bit of that collector thing that that kicks in Uh, on the new guitar front, you know especially with these uh, a guitar maker is often called a luthier, which comes from the yeah. word <laughs> lute maker. Not a lot of yeah. lutes floating around the music scene these days, but somehow that word. Should, should had- <laughs> we start up the, the lute journal? <laughs> no. We no, got in we our next not. project. <laughs> <laughs> Circulation of two. Uh, we printed it at the uh, Kinko's or I guess they're called now FedEx. But uh, yeah, I mean, as, as you – Look at sort of the modern guitar movement, Um, the makers who are building stuff today. I think a lot of people find guitar makers that speak to them either aesthetically or maybe their heroes have played that instrument. And so you get you get into that universe of like, well, I, I want this guitar because Billy Strings plays it or Molly Tuttle or, you know, whomever is your guitar hero. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get into the world of, um, you know, again, we're kind of jumping all around, but, um, guitars are very visual things. Sometimes it's the yeah. wood and the appointments and the visuals that speak to you. Um, there are some things happening now. Finally, uh, it's a very tradition based world, uh, in the world of guitars, but, uh, alternative woods are starting to come into play. Um, so you kind of buy into, you know, it's like anything you buy into this story. I'm a K2 skier. I, I only yeah. like K2s or I only like Taylor guitars. I love what Taylor guitar stands for. Mm-hmm. You sort of find yourself in these little weird silos, whether intentional or not. And, yeah. and then you go a little deeper and you're like, well, I had this entry level Taylor and now I'm going to spring for this one because the fingerboard looks so beautiful with this tree of life or whatever. Or I really love this beautiful wood on the back and you know, won't that look great hanging on my wall? So there's just, you know, there's so many different 
it's like a choose your own adventure book with like a myriad of ways. Like there's so many ways you can go here. So let's really back things up here and talk a bit about the history of guitar making, you know, as a way to get some context to then talk more about, you know, guitar making today and what's happening. But I mean, this has to be one of the oldest instruments in humankind, right? As I was thinking about this, I'm like, okay, I'm going to guess the drum maybe was the first instrument outside of like the human voice. Yep. So here, here's my off the cuff. I didn't look at any Wikipedia pages or anything here, but like we had the drum. Yes. I'm going to assume that preceded the guitar, but the guitar is got to be one of the first and most ancient instruments developed. No? Yeah. I mean, I am I am not the like early guitar history expert. There's an incredible museum in Phoenix, Arizona, the Museum huh. of uh, Musical Instruments uh, that folks should check out if you really want a comprehensive, if you ever find yourself in Arizona for any reason, like go to that museum. But yeah, I mean, I think the guitar... You know, if you Wikipedia it, it probably says it's thousands of years old. And and that probably is the lute or whatever the previous incarnations were of a, a piece of wood with string strung across it. I think, uh, you know, there's there are there's a Stradivarius guitar, you know, Stradivari, the, the vi- famed violin maker yeah. made guitars. Huh. Um, those guitars wouldn't hold up to the way people play instruments today and they probably wouldn't i know they wouldn't hold up to the strings that people use today which are much higher tension you know steel strings that's a it's a totally different beast but most guitarists um you know one of the the pivotal moments is like 1833 it's like on every headstock of every martin acoustic guitar that is when Martin guitars, Christian Frederick Martin, started building instruments in New York, New York. Eventually, he moved to Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is where Martin guitars are still produced. If hmm. you ever find yourself near Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which I know is not really near much of anything, uh, the Martin Guitars Factory Tour is a real eye-opening experience and will blow anyone's mind whether or not you're an, an instrument person. Um, but yeah, th- that's one of the pivotal you know, things that happened. And and so Martin guitars throughout the 1800s made instruments in on a small scale at their factory. These were kind of instruments that would be played in like parlors when people had parlors attached to their house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's these sort of like weird words that we still kind of use, but not really. Yeah. Um, and And it wasn't until really the 1920s, the 1930s that um, steel stringed acoustic instruments and then later with the advent of electricity and amplification, we get into electric guitars. But that's really, you know, a a Martin guitar from the 30s is largely the same, although worth exponentially more than a Martin guitar made this year. Uh, A lot of the design is the same. A lot of the wood's you know, at least from an outward appearance, look the same. Um, that's really the the twenties, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties is when we start to really see sort of the quote unquote modern era of guitar making come into play. Sum that up for me um, for just a second. So, eighteen thirty three, kind of a definitive point in the history of modern guitars. Sure, we have 
stuff going on there but then this next moment the 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 1920s and 1930s mm-hmm. what shifted for us then oh man this gets so nerdy uh, good but but that's what d- so dude it, that's what we do why did what do you you're acting like you don't know what we do here <laughs> so believe it or not uh in the 19 teens in the 1920s the most popular instrument to play uh, maybe piano i'm not I, we'll talk about stringed instruments the most popular fretted instrument to play was the mandolin gibson guitars orville gibson was like a proponent of mandolin orchestras and they would hype these mandolin clubs and you could go to your local school or community center and see 40 people on stage playing the mandolin family of instruments like it was uh, you know going to the symphony or something wow and and it wasn't until and i don't even know what exactly triggered the change i probably should but um as instruments started to need to get louder as music trends changed the guitar slowly became more popular and Mm -hmm. and that is when you know we start to see the advent of of these like more what we consider like a modern acoustic guitar which is what martin and and then gibson were doing in the 30s and 40s 1930s 1940s yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. Good to get good to get our century correct yeah. there. I mean the other the other instrument that had its heyday like in the 20s and the depression era is the ukulele. Like there Martin was on the verge of bankruptcy during the depression, but then so many people took up the ukulele that they basically, you know, pushed the guitars to the side and only made whatever they could sell and made tens of thousands of ukuleles in the 1920s. And and if you go onto eBay right now, and type in vintage Martin ukulele, you will see dozens and they're all in the, you know, the, the simple ones are in the $500 range and you can own something that's a hundred years old. And one of the greatest ukuleles ever made, um, like you can own a piece of history for 500 bucks. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a lot of them floating around. I love this history, by the way, that the, that that mandolins were sort of dominant, and then they got kind of pushed out by guitars. What sparked the interest in ukuleles? I mean, I think it was just a cheap instrument. I mean, we're talking about yeah. the depression. There depression was not era. a lot of money to be spent. Um, you have you had radio stars um, like again. This is getting so nerdy. I apologize to everybody. No, um, stop it. Stop apologizing. Cliff, Cliff Edwards, ukulele Ike, who was the voice of Jiminy Cricket. Uh, he, he was this tortured soul who was like Mm. one of the biggest stars of, of radio and vaudeville and vaudeville drove a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, there were, there were great musicians from the jazz realm, from the more like almost stand up comedy realm who would incorporate ukuleles or guitars into their vaudeville act. And so there was this crazy ukulele craze in the twenties. Um, and, and it kind of happened again in the fifties a little bit because of a guy named Arthur Godfrey and Hawaiian music and Mm -hmm. Hawaii becoming a state and sort of that craze happening. And then it happened Mm -hmm. again, you know, 15 years ago, uh, I can't exactly explain why it happened again, but every, every 25 to 30 years, there seems to be a ukulele craze. It's 25 year cycle. It's like, yeah. like comets. Yeah. yeah. This is great. Any other developments um, as we move into these shifts of what's popular 
um, in terms of guitar making. I mean, I guess I would think, you know, man, we've got obviously Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, you know, two of the biggest names, um, you know, Hank Williams before them. But so 60s, the 60s and 70s, I would think big era for guitars, though ukulele still doing its 20 year, 25 year cycle, I guess. Sure. But then we move. I mean, Dylan goes electric, right? Yep. P- pretty seismic mo- moment. Um, we have Led Zeppelin coming around. We start having monster bands. Does that shift things or move the needle to an interest in electric guitars versus acoustic? Yeah. I mean, rock and roll changed everything. Uh, Electric guitars, you know, took over. And then, you know, obviously a lot of those bands also played acoustic, but yeah, electric guitars had a lion's share of attention for a long time because rock was so prominent. And then there was this thing called disco that happened you know, disco almost killed a lot of guitar companies. These, those huh. were an incredibly lean time. And and I think the thing that actually kind of brought the guitar back into resurgence was like Eric Clapton's Unplugged was a mm-hmm. huge pivotal moment for Martin guitars and guitars in general because people were like, oh, yeah, you can make beautiful music on an mm. acoustic guitar. And they kind of forgot. And now we're kind of in this place where it's, you know, Guitar, the guitar universe is kind of split 50-50, I feel like. Um, I don't know the exact numbers from the industry studies, but it, at least the way I view the universe of of guitars right now, it's sort of like there's the electric side and the acoustic side, and we're all kind of copacetic. And, you know, I, we try to cover a little bit of each in our magazine. Man, I would have guessed if you said today, where is the market in terms of acoustic versus electric? I would have guessed way bigger on the acoustic side than the electric side today. But but you don't think so in terms of just sales and what people are actually purchasing. No, I mean, there's a reason we have a Vintage Amps podcast. There are a lot yeah. of electric guitarists out there who like to plug in and rock out. And, um, you know, it, it's so it's such a nebulous thing. It's exactly like skiing where it's like there's a lot of skiers out there who ski, what, once or twice a year and they call themselves skiers. And there's a lot of guitarists out there who maybe have their old Stratocaster from their high school days and and consider themselves an electric guitarist, but may not play guitar that much at all or or may play more acoustic. So it's always kind of hard to know. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of view it just split down the middle and leave it leave it simple like that. Okay. Yeah. So good history of guitar making. <laughs> We've talked about some of the players and the, the, the large brands, some of the boutiques. Mm-hmm. But let's dive in a bit more just in terms of the actual craft of manufacturing guitars today what does that landscape look like i mean it's changing that's one of the more interesting things going on in the world of guitars i think for decades uh you know there was this common sentiment that handmade is always better than machine made and that american made was always better than non-american made when it came to guitars everything is kind of in flux right now and that's on both the acoustic side and the electric side the reality is you know, Fender, to just use as an example, you know, has some tremendous overseas, you know, they've got a brand called Squire that's making some really cool, really interesting guitars, really affordable under a thousand dollars that have, you know, no quality control issues. Whereas, 
you know, if I'm being really honest in the spirit of blister, like some fenders made in America that cost two or three times as much do have quality control issues. Now, this is like going to a restaurant and getting a bad meal. It can just happen. Mm -hmm. Like nobody's perfect. But the lines are a little blurry right now in terms of like, it doesn't necessarily, just spending more money doesn't necessarily mean you get a better instrument. Just saying I'm going to buy American doesn't necessarily mean you get a better value than the thing you get overseas. And, uh, and even, you know, and this has been a, an adjustment for me in my 18 years of publishing a guitar magazine, you know, 18 years ago, it was sort of almost this cliche of, you know, the person hovering over their workbench with a chisel, you know, finally yeah. tuning the top of a, of a, you know, acoustic or guitar. CNCs are now widely used by not only the big factories, but also some of the folks who are selling twenty and thirty thousand dollar in instrument guitars. CNCs can do a great job of, you know, rough cutting a guitar neck or rough cutting a body. Some of the stuff that's actually really physically hard on a luthier that you know results in arthritis or you know early retirement, a machine can do. And so you know, we kind of are moving away from the home handmade word being this sort of catch-all buzz phrase of all that's good in the world mm -hmm. uh and and we're we're starting to see more you know like i said individual and boutique guitar factories making very high quality instruments that are like yeah we use machines because like this thing can do better than we can mm -hmm. so back to the question about performance and what we actually mean by performance. Yeah. You were talking earlier, talking about, you know, guitarists putting together their quiver of guitars and you said it's just like skiing. Mm -hmm. Except for me, I and I, I love actually putting different industries kind of juxtaposing them. I think sure. it kind of helps us learn some things about both. But I don't know many skiers who are putting together a quiver and they're doing so for vintage reasons or nostalgic reasons per se. It is, for the most part, about, yeah, this ski excels in this particular discipline or has this performance characteristic. It's different tools. Here are the analogy shifts to like a, um, you know, your, your toolkit, right? Um, or I like to use the the analogy of utensils right a fork is good at doing certain things different than a spoon is good for so in the guitar landscape are we just about identifying different tools for different jobs are people owning a quiver of guitars to get just a different soundscape or is it a better sound? How do we think about that in this world? Man, this is so subjective because guitars are such personal objects. And frankly, a lot of guitars are trying to buy what they worshipped when they were younger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you worship Jimmy Page, you're going to want yeah. a Les Paul, a Gibson Les Paul. And it should look like, you know, a, a classic Les Paul in mm -hmm. color and shape and size. Um we, I, I would say guitarists in general have a quiver because a smaller bodied acoustic guitar sounds one way. If you decide you're going to take up bluegrass guitar, you need a louder guitar because you're going to be playing alongside a banjo player. A, and this gets even more nerdy, like 
if you look at an electric guitar, the thing that's actually picking up the electric signal are called pickups. There's sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes three mounted on the body of the guitar. Those have a dramatic effect on whether a guitar is going to sound shrill or trebly or deep or bassy or any number of other adjectives. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so... Depending on if you are playing heavy metal or you're in a country band, like your needs become dramatically different. And and it's not even about the shape of the guitar. It's about like what's going on with the wiring and the electronics of that guitar. The thing that's interesting about guitars that's different from skiing is like a well uh, set up, adjusted guitar from the 60s or 70s that was left the factory perfectly in tune and was dialed in, if if brought up to snuff or well-maintained, will still sound exactly the way you want it and play it exactly the way you want it now. So you've got this wide, you know, if if you want a new or just new to you electric guitar, you've got like 70 years of <laughs> of inventory you can yeah. choose from realistically. Whereas I don't know too many skiers who would go back even 10 years Right. To buy a pair of powder skis. Right. No, bad. You don't want to do that. <laughs> Although yeah. everybody, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to that Rosignol Sickle review and, and done a Google search just because you guys kind of <laughs> made that ski up on a pedestal. <laughs> well, the sickle, the sickle could hold its own. There definitely are like a handful of skis that we would still be happy to see around today, yeah. but that is not true across the board. Sure. Um and one of the things we talk a lot about in terms of like if we shift over to mountain bikes, yeah, nobody wants to ride a 10-year-old mountain bike yeah. by any company of any discipline. Like, yeah. So, the, the technological advances there have been dramatic yeah. you know, over the last decade, way more so even than skis, I would argue. This, this is the big thing in guitars that, that infuriates some and obviously brings pleasure to a lot of others is – the big brands, Fender, Gibson, Martin Guitars, the lion's share of their sales are them trying to recreate the classic guitars of their lineup. So I can't tell you how many Gibson iterations of a 1959 Gibson Les Paul there are. That is the guitar that if you had a, an original version, it would be worth $400,000, $500,000. It's wow. what Slash has been seen with a million times along with many other rock heroes. Um, there are dozens of iterations of what is basically the same guitar with maybe slight adjustments to the level of wood or appointment or how, how many human hands touch them or hand varnish, things like that. Um, that is where the guitar world is sort of, you know, so tradition based that, you know, some people are like, Hmm. can we see some new stuff? Yeah. But the masses really want that thing that they saw their rock hero play um, back in 1970 or 1980 or whenever it was. Um, so a lot of Martin guitars look exactly like the Martin guitars of the thirties. They, they market them as being built the same way at the same hmm. factory. I mean, they're championing it. They're proud of this. Yeah. Um, but you, you do have in the world of guitars, some more modern both factory built guitars as well as handmade guitars you do we are finally in 2023 starting to see some alternative woods being brought into the picture because 
frankly, a lot of the classic woods that were on these guitars came from rainforests. And as much as a guitarist wants to have a 1930s Martin D28 because it has Brazilian rosewood, that is a substance that's been banned by CITES for years because too many Brazilian rosewood trees were cut down because of deforestation. And so the value of those guitars has maintained high because you can't literally cannot replicate them anymore. The wood Hmm. does not exist. It's it's not extinct, but it's getting there. Um, but yeah, there there are some inroads being made finally in in the world of you know guitar woods and and getting very tradition based guitarists to accept some kind of like unique materials. So then, are there specific brands manufacturers out there that are just pushing the envelope, tr- like? making a name for themselves by kind of getting weird by by pushing that envelope by trying to be like all right like if you and i were going to start a guitar company i don't think i want to go up against fender and gibson (laughs) yeah so one strategy would be like let's forget the tradition and we're going to go cutting edge and then it so first question is that happening who are some of those brands and then what does that look like what are they doing to sort of be on the forefront and move us into a whole different way of thinking about these things and building these things. Yeah. I mean, there's a range. I mean, I, I've got a friend, Rachel Rosencrantz in Rhode Island, who is literally trying to make guitars out of like mycelium (laughs) and, and, uh, making banjo heads out of, uh, fish scales. I mean, just like wild, wild stuff. Um, you know, and she's doing, you know, a couple of these experiments a year and getting some notoriety for them. We've had her on our podcast. Like she's amazing, but uh, you know, on a broader level, you know, there's like a company in Bend, Oregon, breed love guitars. They're really championing sustainability to the point where, you know, they're, they're saying we're not taking any woods that have been clear cut Hmm. and we are going to put a little QR code in your guitar where you can actually see like the exact GPS coordinates of where these woods came from. I don't think you'll ever want to go visit them. Like they're in the deep Canada or wherever they came from, but they really want to position themselves as an you know, one of the most ecologically friendly guitar companies around. Taylor Guitars, uh, much higher volume, just in the last few years has really been championing what they call, they've coined the phrase urban ash. These are ash trees that have grown up around, you know, they're based in San Diego. These are ash trees that have been in playgrounds or lining freeways. They've partnered with an arborist firm and they're taking the cream of the crop of this wood that literally, you know, cars were buzzing up and down I-5 past it for (laughs) decades. These trees are at the end of their life. Taylor is putting them into guitars and Taylor has the means and the marketing capability to tell this story and kind of get tens of thousands of guitarists to go like, ah, this urban ash actually sounds pretty good. Um, whereas I think if, if somebody, you know, who only builds 10 guitars a year was trying to convince you that you should buy a $10,000 guitar that has wood from the side of the freeway might be a harder sell. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of great brands that, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like Yamaha and Guild that are making factory guitars that aren't in the classic four model size shapes. Uh, Ernie Ball primarily known as a string manufacturer, had a ton of success with an electric guitar partnership with St. Vincent. And it was sort of billed as sort of a, you know, ergonomically for a woman 
to be able to play easier, smaller body size. But honestly, I've seen just as many dudes play that guitar as women. Um, it's just a great guitar. And so, you know, you see, you see bigger manufacturers, you see smaller manufacturers, like some independent builders, you know, I, I'm going to leave out so many names, but my buddy, Mike Baranick in San Luis Obispo is making a really cool electric guitar where you can slide the pickup up and down on a little track. So you get a range of tones out of one electric guitar. Hmm. Um, there's just a, it's a really, you know, embarrassingly great time to be guitar shopping right now because every color of the rainbow, every flavor you could ever want is available to you. Is there a specific like boutique manufacturer that you would identify that's sort of really broken out or broken through and is kind of the hotness right now? And and kind of maybe second question, and that might actually make it into that higher volume world those are two different questions but yeah. maybe i'll start with the first like yeah. is like right now would you say god these of uh, people who really know and obsess about these things this particular company is so hot yeah here's the thing with um guitars and and maybe with just every industry i haven't really thought about this but it, it's 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 not easy to go from a, being a one person sole proprietor company to having no. multiple employees, but there is sort of this ceiling where, you know, uh, Collings might have 50 employees. They make amazing guitars, but then to go from 50 to 500 employees or a thousand employees, that's such a bigger jump. You can go from zero to 40 employees and still kind of be a sole proprietor and not take on investment money and, and just sort of grow organically. And if you're good and you're in the trenches long enough, I mean, we've seen that happen with ski brands. We've seen that happen with all sorts of great things. But um, the minute you go from being like a great guitar maker who has employees to being sort of a great business person, that's sometimes a whole different skill set. And so there is this sort of barrier. I yeah. think Paul Reed Smith, um, you know, in Maryland, went, you know, is one of the few people who went from building guitars by hand, you know, handing them to Carlos Santana and all these rock stars and kind of getting a name for himself to ramping up to where they now have hundreds of employees in a huge mm -hmm. factory. Um, but there are a ton of great smaller companies that were started by actual guitar makers doing interesting things. My buddy in Vermont, Adam Buckwald, who runs a company called Circle Strings. He, he made guitars one at a time as Circle String Guitars Forever. Um, Trey from Fish is playing a Circle Strings guitar now. And like that's his guitar when you go see a solo show of, hmm. of Trey Anastasio. Um, Adam decided that you know, he had the the guitar ability and know-how and the staff to make a lower-end model of guitars. So he's got a model called the Iris. There's actually several models, but the imprint is called Iris. And, and he's making a great two to three thousand dollar acoustic guitar, largely handmade in Burlington, Vermont. Wow. Um, with a very small staff. And, you know, has a network of dealers. And so you're st we're starting to see a little bit of that going on where like the, the gurus of our industry, you know, maybe have a great idea for a more affordable option or, you know, uh, uh, maybe a, an entry level guitar. And, and honestly, Adam's instruments are incredible. So that's kind of a cool thing. 
On the other end of the spectrum, we just did this whole story and podcast series and some videos around Yamaha, which is this behemoth of industry <laughs> across mm-hmm. several different industries. Yeah. Um, you know, they've always made a great affordable guitar, a great mass market, you know, I mean, a, a six or $700 Yamaha kind of is maybe all the guitar most people ever need. And it's, mm. you know, it may not be as sexy as having a Martin or a Gibson on the headstock, but uh great guitar. They hired a, an individual builder based in California named Andrew Enns to basically try to compete with the callings and the Martins of the worlds at the three to four or $5,000 price point of like making an ultimate bluegrass guitar. And and so they had one guy in California make all these iterations of like, what would the Yamaha classic dreadnought guitar look like? Years in the makings of him sending guitars, you know, making his version of a perfect guitar, sending it to Japan, them trying to clone it back and forth, back and forth. And they finally just announced it and, and you know, uh, started selling it this year at the big trade show, uh, NAM in Anaheim. Beautiful guitar, three three thousand, four thousand dollars. Um, you know, would would make a great bluegrass guitar. We have one here, um, an earlier prototype, and and so there's just sort of this like, like I said earlier, there's like this really interesting cross pollinization going on where the more expensive brands are trying to make lower end yeah. offerings. The lower end brands are dipping their toes in the custom market, and and maybe that's a byproduct of COVID and sort of some uncertainty of just brands trying to be diversified and appeal to a wide range of customers. Hmm. So this is helpful. You're <laughs> kind of setting out a range of prices for us. Oh, okay. And yeah. and I think that's pretty interesting. So like um <laughs> next week's crafted episode, I another obsession of mine is coffee. Mm-hmm. And um I'm fully in the weeds on this and and we're next week talking about coffee gear and espresso makers and that's one of those where things can get pretty stupid expensive pretty quickly sure but for somebody say i was like all right i'm doing it i'm taking the leap into the world of guitars i like the idea if i'm going to get into a new hobby like spend the money Mm -hmm. not not in the stupid stupid ways but like Buy something that will be nice and I will like. And that I think a big thing when starting a new hobby is buy something that will keep you coming back, yep. right? Like yep. what's the what's the best running shoe? Probably the one that actually gets you out running and yeah. keeps you running, right? That kind of a thing. So I'm willing to, you know, take the upfront hit on cost, let's say. Okay. And I hear you th- talking about six to seven hundred dollars. I hear you talking about three thousand to four thousand dollars. I don't really hear you talking about ten thousand dollars. If if we're talking about ten thousand, twenty thousand, yeah. now it sounds like we are in the rarefied air of you know you're either buying something historically significant or you know we're we're doing really rare materials. Yep. But I wouldn't you wouldn't be suggesting to go spend 10 or 20 K for somebody like just getting into the, the hobby and the discipline. No, 
no. I mean, those guitars exist. And and if you want to do a follow up episode of like what makes a ten or twenty thousand dollar guitar worth that much or more, mm-hmm. including just the new ones, we we could go really deep. And it's it's kind of a fascinating world with all sorts of crazy twists and turns. But yeah, I mean, I think you know playing a guitar is. You know, for a lot of people, especially starting out, it's not easy. It requires practice. Right. You know, right. it's it's like I wouldn't want to learn how to ski now at the age of 49. Like it's hard <laughs> at first. It helps if you start when you're a kid. Like, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, so you want to find something that's just going to bring you joy, whether that yeah. means it brings you joy because you didn't go into debt to buy it or you look at it and you just smile. Um, I think one of the best things you can do is, you know, go to a guitar store, a a real one that is staffed by passionate people as with ski gear or anything and get your hands on a lot of instruments and, and just see what speaks to you. And, and that could be the way that it actually is like voiced and, and the tone of the guitar and and how Mm -hmm. it sounds or just how it feels on your hand. Cause neck shapes are completely random and different. I mean, there are known shapes like a C shape or a soft V guitar makers use these terms, but until you have it on your hand and kind of know it, um, you know, it takes some time to kind of get that knowledge under your belt of like, this feels good. And if you don't have the time or you're just starting out, like buy something that looks like something that's cool (laughs) and that has been set up expertly you know, you can get a guitar, even a, a relatively cheap overseas guitar set up for a couple hundred bucks the way you would uh, go to a boot fitter or something. And then at least, you know, like, okay, I've got a level playing field here. I I have everything under me right now to learn a song. I have no excuses and I'm just going to hammer at this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that your best advice kind of for anyone listening to this um, who was like, maybe I should pick up a guitar and start trying to play. So was that, was that, I mean, I asked, yeah, it started, I, mean, I, I think, asked just because I asked you about my specific yeah. case, but if, is that kind of your general advice? Yeah. If you are just starting out, you know, I wouldn't go necessarily lower than $500. I think you're going to be facing a little bit of an uphill battle in terms of playability and intonation mm-hmm. and stuff. There are exceptions to that, but yeah, between 500 and a thousand dollars, you can get a, a great acoustic or electric guitar that, you know, will serve you well until you're playing gigs at the local coffee shop or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be all that you ever need and, and you probably as with ski gear and everything else will end up getting a second guitar or upgrading at some point, but you could just do great with that guitar as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so funny not to make another ski aside, but it's so funny how relative these things are. You know, I'm throwing out these numbers. I'm not rich and I'm like $500,000 entry level guitar. At the same time, I've had bookmarked on my my browser, a pair of $700 skis where I'm like, do I really want to spend $700? I've no, I don't think I've ever spent $700 on a pair of skis Hmm. and I love skiing. You know, I tend to buy stuff off TGR or, or, you know, at, at clearance. And so it is funny how relative this stuff is. Hmm. But maybe keeping that analogy going with skiing, somebody you're saying, starting out you suggest kind of 500 to a thousand dollars but that would be for a new guitar 
Yeah. Not not a use. So if well, we and, and used as well. I mean, I think I think that is the sweet spot of like you can get a great used guitar in that range. For, you might get a little bit more guitar than if you were to buy new. Cause like a secondhand Taylor guitar, obviously it's like taking a new car off the lot. Like it yeah, loses a yeah. little bit of its value. But that's still kind of a great range. But so my point though was you're saying you're five hundred to a thousand dollars. That's for looking at a secondhand guitar, not a brand new guitar. No, you can get a great guitar for that price range too. That's brand new. Brand new. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's your range. I mean, it may not be, you know, it may not have the greatest woods. It may not. And again, this is all so subjective. These woods look beautiful to any of them at any range. Mm-hmm. Like, um, but it may not have the most exotic woods. It may not have a solid, if it's, we're talking acoustics, it may not, it may have a laminated back instead of a solid one piece back. But um, yeah, you can get a great guitar for under grand these days. It's, it's an embarrassment of riches. Hmm. Last question. Yeah. Who are your guitar heroes? <laughs> My guitar heroes. That is a good question. Uh, I am, you know, as is probably apparent from the the last hour of nerd talk, not the most like mainstream guy imaginable. Like I'm not going to say Katy Perry or, you know, Taylor Swift. No one's saying <laughs> Katy Perry. That was a, that was a straw man. That wasn't even, that was bad. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Bad and bad analogy with Katy, but, um, you know, my one of my guitar heroes I've actually been blessed to become friends with and and worked with a bunch and and that is, you know, the the jazz musician Bill Frizzell who is uh, an incredible artist who used to live in the neighborhood where the fretboard journal and I used to live. And so hmm. we've shot a dozen videos on our YouTube channel of him playing some of the most beautiful solo jazz guitar imaginable he did uh surfer girl by the beach boys he's done a dylan tune like he's done like i i we could make a great bill frizzell solo record just off the audio from these youtube videos that we've done um and and i what i love about bill and what i love about a lot of guitarists who you know are interesting is like that guy can play one note on a guitar whether it's acoustic electric something he owns or something you hand him and within 10 seconds, you're like, oh yeah, that's Bill Frizzell, if you've heard him huh. once. And that's really what separates a great musician from a less great musician is sort of like, it's, I hate to use these cliches, but it's like all in their hands. Like it really doesn't matter. I, you know, I think if you heard Slash play a cheap imported acoustic guitar, he would still probably sound like Slash, uh, mm-hmm. even if he doesn't have his $400,000 Les Paul under him. So yeah, Bill is a huge, uh, huge influence. I love the music of the Punch Brothers and all of their iterations on the on the sort of like bluegrass front. Billy Strings is doing incredible things right now. I mean, I have so many favorite musicians. I love Bob Dylan. I love Neil Young uh, on the on the slightly younger front. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of a bunch of the indie bands that I worshipped when I was in my 20s, like Built to Spill and Fugazi. Mm. Um, I'm I'm all over the map. Okay. Yeah. Different question, and I'm going to pin you down more on this one. Sure. Best guitarists ever. Oh God. <laughs> and so, if we were to do kind of the like you know Mount Rushmore type of thing, <laughs> who has to be on it? Well, I mean, I think there are some some obvious 
folks that just need to be on there, like Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Eric Clapton. I mean, there's that's four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it gets a little more subjective after that, I think, in terms of like your style and where you're coming at music. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of people who are alive and playing today, Mark Knopfler. Dire yeah. Straits is still oh. alive and playing yeah. incredible music. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have not immersed yourself in that world, uh, please do. Uh, yeah. I mean, Neil Young. I mean, there's so many great guitars. It's insane. Of the first four you mentioned. Yeah. And it was Hendrix, Page, Beck, Cla- and Clap- Clapton. Yeah. Who, again, among guitar obsessives, who would be the most controversial to have on your top four of those top four? Well, I mean, <laughs> not to get into politics or recent events, but I think I think Clapton during the pandemic may have said a few things. Okay, I don't. I'm, we're not. We're not talking about like individual politics. From I'm talking about who would there be the most pushback against? Hmm. Like, no, from a sheer who is the best guitarist ever conversation. I'm guessing it would be Beck for not a particularly good reason, but that's my hunch is people might, I, I I don't think there'd be that many people tempted to pull Hendrix out of the mix. Sure. But so from that point of view, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with you that Jeff Beck is a guitarist, guitarist, like uh, people who've been playing guitar for a long time, pick up on his genius and know it. But the latter half of his career, he was kind of like pushing the boundaries and doing kind of weirder music that that wasn't sort of just the classic rock sound that everybody expected from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for that reason, yeah, I think he would probably be what the probably the most controversial one. Although barely, I mean, I think guitarists would would totally. I mean, there's a saying: Jeff Beck is God because he's kind of one of the guitar gods. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So okay, so that that's a good answer. He so just maybe got a not. Weirder. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So but then if okay, so if you had to pull one. Oh, do I have to? Yeah. Well, we're making room for other and I mean, would a would a again, um you're representing this isn't your personal opinion, yeah, but yeah, now yeah. you're representing how these debates go down in the guitar world. Would people be trying to make the case for BB King or people are like, "No, he's fantastic, but we're not in the we can't take out these first four that you've mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think it just depends on how, you know, what you want this Mount Rushmore to resemble. Do you want it to resemble the entire history of, of great guitar playing? Yes, that's what if we you want. Do, yes. I think you would probably, you know, maybe you would, you would take out Jeff Beck and replace him with like Django Reinhardt who, hmm. you know, changed the course of jazz guitar forever. Um, you know, there are there is a case to be made for, you know, Slash or Kurt Cobain being up there because they inspired tens of thousands of people to take up the instrument. Whether or not they were playing at the, you know, virtuosic level of Jimmy Page or Jeff Beck uh, could be debated, but they inspired a bunch of people. And that's kind of the cool thing about guitar is sort of like you – you get you get at it at whatever resonates with you, whatever music either that you loved when you were young or that you love now, like that's your entry point. I said that that was all going to sort of be my last question, but then I asked like five more. Here's here's a very, very personal okay. last question. Yeah, sure. One of my absolute favorite Dylan songs 
is called Blind Willie McTell. Mm-hmm. What do you know about Blind Willie McTell? Blind Willie McTell was an incredible blues guitarist. Um, yeah, I mean, he is from the 20s and 30s, I believe. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, Bob Dylan has celebrated a lot of important and quirky figures in the world of music. And and that is a great song. And um, yeah, Blind Willie McTell, there are all these iterations of blues styles that um, and, and folks who are really blues connoisseurs. And I'm not talking about like modern blues, you know, electric guitar, but folks who really, you know, collect Robert Johnson 78s and Blind Willie McTell 78s. There's all these different styles and, and Blind Willie McTell played a, a style called Piedmont Blues, which was kind of an offshoot of, again, we're talking like vaudeville ragtime. And it was very hmm. like syncopated guitar, which means like your right hand is doing some intricate stuff, even though it doesn't necessarily sound like it's doing complicated things. And uh, yeah, he's one of the greats. Hmm. Yeah, I have um, in my, you know, brash days, back when I was brash, unlike now, you know, um, <laughs> I, I've tried to make the case that that's the greatest blues song ever mm. dylan's blind willie mctell uh, and because i think the conceit of it is so it, you know it basically and everyone should check this song out i yeah uh, it, it kills me um and i i saw i actually saw dylan i've seen dylan a lot um nice. i don't know what a lot means but um like 20 times mm-hmm. and i was at a concert at berkeley uc berkeley and the opening notes of Blind Willie McTell are so sort of decisive and recognizable. He played that song at Berkeley. And this is not a song he trots out very often. Mm-hmm. And I lost my freaking mind. Like that goes down as one of my favorite musical experiences of my life. And I like, I, I kind of like, I swore loudly, like, you know, holy when, and everybody around me kind of turned. Cause I don't even think people there sort of were very familiar with that song. Um, but the idea of the song, right. And why I think it's gotta be in the running for me personally, at least is one of the greatest blues songs ever. It's the conceit is like, things are so bad now that, and we don't even have, a blind Willie McTell around to put it into proper context, <laughs> exactly how bad it is. And um, I don't know. I That's just always been one of my favorites. And uh, you, you have no idea how lucky you are to go to a Dylan show and get exactly what you were, your, your heart was set on because hmm. you know, that is an artist who has been uh, defying predictability for his entire career yeah. and and many have gone to a dylan show and said that was revelatory and and just as many if not more have at least recently have gone and gone like what the heck was that you know yeah. so for for him to play your song is like yeah. the coolest congratulations yeah <laughs> hey man i should let you get back to your day um okay. what a fun conversation it's been really cool to get to know you and then to learn what you've been doing in this world. And yes, some of the sort of parallel tracks that, you know, you've been doing at the fretboard journal and kind of our approach to things at blister. And, um, this is, uh, 
this has all been really fun and, and I really appreciate uh, all the information and kind of the education you've provided today. Um, I, th- I think we will need to do this again at some point. Anytime, if anybody out there has any questions, like I can steer you in the right direction, reach out to me and, and yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm happy to help however possible. And we should say, um, first of all, the Fretboard Journal is a beautiful, beautiful magazine. Um, and uh, and if people are interested in checking it out, where's the best place to go? Yeah, I mean, go to fretboardjournal.com and, and read up. I, I will say we are a bit like the Surfer's Journal and Mountain Gazette and the Ski Journal where like 95% of our content is only in the print magazine. I guess yep. that's similar to what you guys do too. Um, but we do have a ton of podcasts people can check out for free. We do have a ton of videos that, uh, are, you know, featuring many of the people who show up in our magazine and we do have some online articles, but yeah, fretboardjournal.com is how you can subscribe to our print magazine. If you want it, we are also carried at a bunch of guitar stores around the country and, uh, yeah, I'm easy to get a hold of, uh, on Instagram or in uh, real life. So. Where should people find you on Instagram? Just Fretboard Journal. Uh, the aforementioned nerdy uh, tube amp podcast has its own Instagram feed called just Vintage Amps Podcast. But uh, yeah, go to go to Fretboard Journal uh, at Fretboard Journal and, and you'll get a sense of all that we're up to. Appreciate it, man. <laughs> Thanks for talking today and we'll talk to you again real soon. No problem. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Jason for the great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these Crafted conversations, we would very much appreciate it if you would take just a minute to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And that will help us just keep this whole enterprise going and growing. We've got some very big ideas for conversation topics and guests that we'd like to have on Crafted. So yeah, let's do this, people. Leave us a rating or review if you're appreciating these conversations. And we'll keep exploring all of these fascinating aspects of the craft world. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take good care. And we will talk to you next week because we're going to be dorking out hard about coffee gear with ON3P Skis founder, Scott Andrus. He's a coffee psychopath. I'm telling you now, you don't want to miss it. All right, everybody. Bye-bye.